what am I trying to do with my money? What am I trying to do socially? What am I trying to do financially? And there's this false narrative around market rate returns. You are the market. Hi, Caesar. How's hey. it going? <laughs> Oh, I'm doing okay. Actually. How are you doing? <laughs> We're both just excited to be here. Apparently. I know it's amazing. You know what I think it is? Is like today we actually have someone from California. I'm always we happy do. with California. Oh, wait a minute. You're always here. There's always someone from California. There's always someone from California in the room, and oh. they're always obnoxious about it. You're okay, welcome, Caesar. Okay, now there's going to be two of them. I think I'm going to go in another studio. <laughs> As you know, we're really happy today. Uh, today we have with us Lindsay Smalling from Social Capital Markets, uh, also known as SoCap, which is a convener of Impact Investors. And we're so excited to have her today. I hope you enjoy it. When we first convened SoCap, which was in 2008, and, and I say we, but it was the founders who you know predate me by five plus years, but they were seeing these emerging conversations around using the power of markets, the power of investment, the power of entrepreneurship to affect social and environmental change. And they would see it coming from a bunch of entrepreneurs that they would get together who weren't doing nonprofits. They were doing for-profits, but with a very clear social intention. And then they'd see it from foundations who are realizing that sometimes a grant wasn't actually the thing that their programmatic partners needed, their you know grantees needed that time. They needed a loan guarantee or they needed some other type of investment. And so there were all these sort of siloed conversations that were all talking about the same thing. And so SOCAP was social capital markets. How do we bring a real market together and get all of you talking to each other and um, and what can happen from that? And then that's grown to now be 3,000 people a year from over 70 wow. countries. Um, it's been running for 12 years. But 3,000 is pretty small in the scheme of things. You know, mm. there's yeah. a really robust industry growing up around impact investing, social entrepreneurship, and really increasingly academia, mm. government, corporates, global NGOs, um, all just saying, you know, for too long, we've we've understood things in this sort of false construct of like capitalism is this driver of wealth and that's what it's used for. And anything that makes you more money, that's the right way to invest. And then philanthropy is the way to make change in the world. Mm. And so if you care about social or environmental issues, you better make enough money that you have some extra to give away. <laughs> and there's like a whole lot of things in the middle of that yeah. that can actually use the really positive um, aspects of markets. I actually think, you know, human-centered design was an interesting entry into the international development world that had for so long sort of parachuted in with solutions that weren't actually designed mm -hmm. by the people who were going to use them. And this feels kind of like those two things showed up in this international development philanthropy world at the same time, where it's like, how could you use the dynamics of a consumer and a supplier to actually know, is this something people want? Mm -hmm. Would people pay for this? If they wouldn't pay for it, maybe it's not the right solution. And there actually is that ability to pay at the margins that then gives whatever that solution is sort of more of a flywheel to grow and to become a broader-based solution that's driven by the consumers rather than driven by some top-down solution. Mm. And so microfinance was an early example, right. sort of, you know, teach someone to fish rather than giving them a fish. And 
And so all of these are just, you know, there's a lot of evolutions over the last 15, 20 years of what it means to look at market-based solutions. There's always going to be a role for philanthropy. There's a really important role for government. All of these sectors still have their roles, but we just haven't looked at the spaces in between mm-hmm. as closely mm-hmm. and, and seen the solutions that are there. So to go back to your question, what are we doing in Seattle? We've just seen demand in different areas of the country. Not everyone's going to fly to San Francisco for three days to have this conversation. And there's some really interesting local conversations. I think that's actually where the work that we're doing and some of the conversations we're having in impact investing most closely intersect with the move Mm -hmm. is at a local level. Mm -hmm. And where can we... In a, in a local context, you understand the impact that your money is having in a much tighter feedback loop. You, like, see it directly. You see the problems in yeah. your community. Yeah. You can see if the solution you invested in is working or not working. Right. And so often finance is really abstracted. Mm-hmm. You invest mm-hmm. in this stock market thing, <laughs> and who knows what's working or what's not. Right. When I think about this, and, you know, this from the— People that I mostly work with and connect with, you know, there's always like capitalism, oh, go away, please, you know, so we can have a better society, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever you are, die. Uh, but, uh, you know, we know it's a lot more nuanced than that, you know. Uh, but one of the things that I know we people struggle with that we try to, that I want to ask you about, which is a lot of times there's a sense that around capitalism and when you try to do things and make them work in the market, that you're always faced with this issue of how do I scale and grow? And yet at the same time, part of what you're saying is things need to be local and connected. So how does how does that tension work? It is a tension, but I think it's a tension in narrative, not in reality. So oh. I guess there's always been mom and pop businesses. Those have been a good source of wealth accumulation. Those have been stable income. It feels like sort of a narrative of more as venture capital became a thing, like Someone I was talking to this morning was talking about the podcast, How I Built This, Mm -hmm. and that when you get the stories from the 80s and 90s, it's a lot of like hustle and bootstrapping and sort of getting everyone around you. And when you get (laughs) post-90s, it's all venture capital money and equity fundraising. And so there's this relatively recent dynamic that that type of money demands growth. Mm. That type of money, because they take outsized risk and give you – give a lot of equity financing in big chunks means that one of those has to be a total runaway winner. So they push all of them to have really high returns on investment because only one out of 10 will actually survive. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's become the narrative because that's sort of sexy and that's, you know, the big tech companies, you need that big, investment up front in a lot of cases. And so the venture capital is the right type of money. If you're opening a barbershop or you're opening, you know, a catering business, you don't need venture money (laughs) because it's never going to grow at the Mm -hmm. rate that venture demands. And there's other types of money that Mm -hmm. don't require that. And so I think there's also this short-termism in the market right now that sort of says, what are you doing next quarter? What are you doing next quarter? And I think we all know that things that matter take longer than a quarter <laughs> most of the time. And so there's these sort of interesting narratives that I, f- I think are relatively recent. And some of the local investing is actually going back to an earlier time, but not, hmm. not that long ago, mm-hmm. saying invest in the people you know. 
Invest mm. in your neighborhood businesses. And I think you're able to make better decisions about these factors of risk, return, mm. and impact when you can see all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a couple of things that I feel like I'm noticing here, right? So there's this scale difference we're talking about in terms of it being um, like global, high scalable versus very local. And then that second, you know, that's the first piece of the localism of it. The second that I'm hearing coming out of it is then because it's local, it kind of breaks down the barriers between consumer and supplier, which I think is really fascinating. And I'd love to hear more about and investor. Right. And then the third piece of that is when that sort of transaction gets broken down and becomes maybe more than just transactive, there is a sort of impact element here, right? And that kind of brings it back to what SoCap's mission is all about. And I'm just, I know there's so many, okay, I have so many questions into these categories, but I want to hear more about this sort of piece about the transaction being more than just a transaction, especially when you can see the feedback so directly, you know, at the local level, what does it mean that you're breaking down or like you're building up relationships between consumers and suppliers and investors? Like, what does that actually look like? So on the investor to sort of business side, I think what it looks like is a more nuanced conversation around what is the the deal we're getting into here Mm. and a more face-to-face conversation of what do you expect your business to do over the next 12 months, over the next five years? Do you want to own it for 20 years? Do you want yeah. to sell it eventually? Yeah. Um, what? How much capital can I offer you? What do I need from that capital? I need it to return this much. Or it's more important to me that um, if I invest in you, you promise not to uh, – that you promise to hire a diverse workforce mm. or, you know, what are the the sort of things about your business that are appealing to me on other dimensions other than just that financial dimension? It sounds a lot more honest and transparent yeah. <laughs> than when you have like, you know, a venture. Yeah. Like a company standard term or, sheet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing about these sort of uh, VC term sheets that's sacred. Right. It doesn't need to be. But we treat it's a, them that It's way. a model yeah. because they're churning through mm. so much, and they're like, if it doesn't hit this, we're not interested because mm. that's the kind of business we're in. And mm-hmm. I'm obviously speaking in generalities, sure, but but that's what local investing. And you think of local investing. That's Ayushi deciding to start a business and asking the you know friends and family, would mm-hmm. you invest in me? And here's what I commit to you: like mm-hmm. I will be able to return your money in two years, five years however many years. Mm -hmm. So when a company will take that approach, right, like this maybe like a throwback approach or a a now probably less traditional uh, way of raising capital, do you feel like that creates a greater sense of community among the people that are putting their money towards this business? Like how does it impact the actual, you know, group of investors, if at all? Well, I think, you know, what I've heard you talk about is this public discourse. And so sometimes these different spaces just create different conversations. So Mm. when you're able to invest in your own community, one, you know where your money is and what it's doing while you sleep at night. Right. You know, (laughs) and two, you have a relationship. So you might go to that pizza parlor more because you, you know, you're an investor in it. You might send your friends there. You might help them do their annual, you know, bike ride or whatever (laughs) the thing is. So that sort of community momentum around it is like another sort of social capital piece. 
and then and then I think as a business, you just feel this true obligation to the people mm. who have invested in you because they are your community. Mm. And that's a different relationship with the way you steward that, you know, that money and that responsibility and and your ability to ask for help, your ability to, you know, mitigate risk as it comes up because you have these real relationships around you. Right. And so um so that's where, you know, capitalism is seen as a bad thing because of the ways that it's perverted in yeah. a lot of ways. But there's there's really positive underpinnings there about relationships around money. And I think I don't personally think it's going away anytime soon. <laughs> and so <laughs> trying to draw out the best of it right. uh, feels like a worthwhile pursuit right. to me. I was listening to you here, you know. We can really see how it starts to work in relationship, particularly around small businesses, things that are really local. But I'm also thinking like, okay, so you live in the Bay Area, we live in Boston, you're in Seattle. One thing those three things have in common is an incredibly tight housing market, right? Where it's getting harder and harder for people, middle income, let alone at the margins, to actually live in these places. Those things are driven by real capital investments and return. So when you bring together, you know, folks are having conversations from government and philanthropy and, you know, from investors, how do they, how do they grapple with something that's so, that it's an engine of its own Mm -hmm. to kind of solve a problem that everyone admits is there? Mm -hmm. But how do they, I mean, like what are those conversations like when you have these big system things that are in place and you realize they're not getting you what you want? Yeah, well, those are bigger institutions in those conversations and a totally different scale of capital. So, um, but that is where I would say more of the impact investing conversation is focused because we're trying to move big pools of capital. Right. I think the local stuff is where real normal people get involved and can be investors and we sometimes forget that. But at that other more institutional scale, I think some of the really interesting work that feels very integrated is being done by anchor institutions mm-hmm. like universities, hospitals um, that are huge employers in a region that have real reasons to care about the health of the population uh, that influence the food systems. They're huge purchasers of you know food and labor and other things. And so even those getting a more nuanced understanding of do I source this locally or who am I sourcing from? How does this whole system work together? And then specific to housing, I think not thinking of housing on its own. So thinking of, okay, for a market rate real estate developer to do this, they have to build luxury condos because otherwise they can't get the return on their investment that they need. And so some of the ways that you can solve those problems is by getting all these stakeholders around the table and seeing that there's different incentives. And so in Seattle, there's a project called Othello Square that's a, driven by a community sort of activist at the margins um, group that's brought all these groups together. It's an area that was very underdeveloped. They brought in some philanthropic money, some private capital some debt. They've pieced together all of these groups that have different appetites for risk, different needs on their return, all of these things. Um, and it's hard. It takes a <laughs> long time. It requires everyone to sort of step outside of their comfort zone of this looks like something we invest in. It looks different. And so you have to take the time to sort of break it down. Why would I say 
no to this? What is it really that's holding me back? And maybe that's whatever that thing is, maybe it can be alleviated by bringing in a different partner who can take down the risk or who can take the first loss or who can subsidize in some way. And so, you know, philanthropy can't solve the housing crisis. Right. But philanthropy could potentially make it easier for market rate developers to come in and build something that looks and feels different. Um, There's another group that came out of that Pacific Northwest convening or didn't, you know, was part of it, a group called Forterra that actually started and, and a big piece of their mission is preserving wildland, natural land, you know, not overdeveloping the Pacific Northwest. And they realized if they didn't start working in urban areas, they wouldn't be able to preserve the urban sprawl. And so they've started working on these really interesting housing projects that are, say, an old strip mall, but there's a large refugee population there that's actually very entrepreneurial. And how could they support them with business financing so they can all start businesses, but then they want to live there? And then what would it look like to add housing units in proximity to where they've started their businesses and just looking at the whole system rather than thinking of housing on its own. So I feel like this this systems understanding, right, the systems approach to work is or can be sometimes contrary to the, like, human-centered design approach that we initially started with because one has a very, like, individual micro perspective and one has this very systematic or structural approach So how does an organization that is, like, you know, on the impact investing side of things or maybe a philanthropy, I don't know, you can, I'm happy to pick any organization, but why would an organization bother, right? Like, why would it make sense for an organization to take on more thoughtfulness, for lack of a better word, than they need to, to make money? I mean, I know this question sounds what it sounds like, but I'm asking it because I think... This is a skepticism a lot of people have, right, is why uh, why would it matter to them? If it's not for a better return, why would they do it? So I think there's a couple ways to make the case for impact investing. And I'll talk about this from kind of an individual, like from an investor perspective, but mm-hmm. I think it, it will help you see this. So there's a values alignment piece mm-hmm. where as an individual, if I'm – horrified by gun control and gun safety in this country, and then I realize that I own and I'm profiting from Mm. gun companies in my portfolio, that doesn't feel great. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we're just not looking. And sometimes just knowing that your assets are doing things that are aligned with your values is a step that doesn't dramatically decrease or, or doesn't decrease your financial returns. And if you're like, okay, I could make 20% off oil and gas, or I could make 18% and only own things I care about, does that feel like a worthwhile trade off? Well do the to 18, you? right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's not zero. Right. You know, right. <laughs> not going from 20 to zero. Yeah. Yeah. The other is risk. Yeah. And so, as much as you say, you know, why would we care? I think a lot of times there's been major backlash to not caring. So mm. you think of, uh, supply chains that were irresponsible and there is a huge fire and mm-hmm. all of your workers die. You think of Enron, you right. think of, right. you know, and so there's these very material risks of not paying attention to your environmental, your social, your mm-hmm. governance, 
these pieces don't always flow back, but yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, and then the third is, it sounds like values, but value. Um, one of the earliest pioneers of impact investing is a guy named Jed Emerson, who sort of didn't use that term impact investing, but used blended value mm. and saying that if we're not looking at the financial, social, and environmental value of each investment, we're working at cross purposes with ourselves. And you see that in that sort of two-pocket thinking that I explained before, make as much money in your investment portfolio, give it away in philanthropy. Again, if you're invested in Exxon and then you give a bunch of money to Greenpeace, you're working at exact cross purposes right. to yourself. And that's right. not being a very smart investor right. in either category. Right. And so thinking about these things on the front end rather than on the back end mm. just helps you make better decisions that incorporates this more integrated, holistic view of what am I trying to do with my money? Mm -hmm. What am I trying to do socially? What am I trying to do financially? And I think, again, there's this false narrative around market rate returns. Mm -hmm. You are the market. Mm. You know, what do you need wow. to retire? Wow. What do you need <laughs> to feel comfortable, you know? And that's a very different question than what your financial advisor is going to tell you. I've never heard that ever before like I am the market that's insanely empowering to think of it that way to be like oh everything I put my eyes on like you know every app I use or everything I put my money towards is you may choose to pay more for organic produce yeah because it matters to you right so that's like and I am like, then determining the market in yeah. some way by doing that I want to say something about that but before I get to that <laughs> I want to go back to something else you just said which I I'm really curious about the morphing of the language from blended value to mm. impact investment mm. because it seems like they're really centered around different things. They mm -hmm. rely on the things. So blended values is is almost saying like, I want to pay attention to what I want to do and I know I have value sets. I'm making value trade-offs all the time and I want to make sure my value trade-offs are much more aligned so I'm living the kind of life, doing the kinds of things I want to support in the world. When you shift that to something that says, well, it's going to be impact investment, it's almost like the ROI language yeah. took over <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> took over that concept, right? It was like, oh, well, that it's got to have cute. impact Blended now, value? You know, yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. to your values are aligned. <laughs> I mean, how did that happen? Why isn't it value-based investing or something, right? Like, why is it? Yeah. Well, it's kind of been all of these blended things. Blended value <laughs> investing. <laughs> the, uh, the jargon, like, definition thing is probably way more time has been spent on it than it deserves. But I take your point. <laughs> and, and it was the funny thing about impact investing in quotes is that there's actually a time, a place, a date. It was coined yeah. at the Bellagio Institute, which is part of the <laughs> Rockefeller Foundation, in 2008 as a way to catalyze the field. So because there, was all, there were all of these different conversations floating around that were calling it social capitalism, that were calling it... Uh, venture philanthropy that, you know, there were all of these terms that were essentially talking about the same thing. They basically brought a bunch of people together and said, okay, can we all agree <laughs> to just call this impact investing? And I'm probably messing that up in some way, but that's the basic idea. And um, so it was kind of decided in 2008 that the field would move forward and just really, because it's still such a fringe conversation Yeah, and it can't be. We have to think about how we are using the power of investment. 
Um, and so what is the impact of those investments? And I think blended value does incorporate more. It incorporates the full spectrum of capital. So it also includes philanthropic capital more so than this impact investing conversation. But the piece that was sort of under-resourced, under-popularized, et cetera, was how are you using the power of investment capital to have impact? And so that's that's where they went with that. Yeah, Really fascinating. Uh, I was just thinking about it like, you know, we're here at MIT, and MIT is an educational institution, and it has a set of values, and it struggles with this too because it also has an investment arm mm-hmm. in Timco, which does all of its research. And there's always this push about which value is going to be driving if Volpe Center gets built versus housing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. for students in this. And one of the things I think what's instructive about that here is how important transparency is in these conversations. So I'm just wondering if you say a little bit about how that's, you know, because I can imagine, and I mean transparency in relationship to the people who are impacted by what comes out of this. So even if there's a notion to think about, okay, we really want to do more impact investment, we can see this cooperation between the government and philanthropy and private investors to actually do these sets of housing. For me, there's something really important about how can you make what happens in that conversation more transparent to public so people can start to have trust that the institutions are actually, you know, moving in the directions that they think, you know? Uh, and where is the role for that voice to come into that conversation to kind of say, yeah, we're aligned in some sense. So I, I could have a, a blended value thing, and I could really believe that I really want to do good within the context of uh, people who are living below the poverty line. I may have a concept of that, but then do I just act on that and feel, okay, well, I've done this with these institution players, but where's the people who are impacted by this, having a voice in this, or at least seeing us being a little more transparent about how we're thinking about this so we can actually test if it's really. Yeah. No, well, I think that that's an area that there's still a long way to go. Um, There's not a lot of transparency in the financial industry. Um, and, And this piece of, like, knowing what you own is that same transparency question on an investor side. And then for an institution, honestly, I I think – the way the decision criteria have not been considering always those voices. And there's maybe a growing awareness that it should be, but how do you get that voice at the table? And it feels like they're not ready to open the coat because they're naked underneath a little bit. I was wondering where you were going with that analogy. (laughs) I was like, I've never heard of opening a coat before. (laughs) Opening doors, maybe. Um, the full Monty. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think because traditionally people's wealth is so private Mm. and people don't talk about it, they don't share it, they don't say, you know, maybe they talk about the one investment they did that did really well or something. But in the impact investing world, some of the work to show how this is done, a few big family foundations that have moved their entire endowment over to Mm. mission-aligned investing have done reports that say, here's where we started. We were invested in hedge funds. We were invested in this. And 
here was our decision to first get the bad stuff out of our portfolio, the things that we weren't aligned with. Mm -hmm. And then some of these things we couldn't get out of for a few years. And so then here's how long it took us to move this over into these things. And then they're showing what was the financial return of the original very market driven approach and then what is their return now with 100% mission aligned and and all of those conversations help address these pieces around trade off mm. around structuring how mm. do you potentially have to structure a portfolio differently that's considering all of these values and that's sort of a wonky term structuring but I won't go into it here but and so that transparency is helpful just partly from a learning perspective so when there are these leaders that are being really thoughtful, that are com considering community voice, how are they getting those stories out there more so that others can copy that, emulate it, figure out how it fits in their own context? And on a different note, I think, did you have um, Aaron Tanaka and Ujima Fund on here? We, we haven't had Aaron yet, but I know Aaron really well. Yeah. Well, yeah. And what they're doing with Ujima Project is super transparent. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's very community oriented, but mm -hmm. they are so out ahead of mm -hmm. really anyone else. Right. But it's a model. And it's a model that they're, Aaron's on lots of podcasts right now, yep. and he's very eloquent and he makes the case and um, they lay it all out on their website. Here's how this is structured. Here's how we do our decision making. Here's how we do this. Um, and I think Aaron and a couple others are really on the leading edge of this conversation and Deborah Fries at Boston Deborah Impact Fries, Initiative right. around what transparency really looks like is giving up power. Mm. Because if you sh if you open the coat right now, it's very um, extractive. It's very market-driven. It's not considering all of those factors in a lot of cases. And so when you actually start to give up power – as the, the asset owner, as the person who's making the investment and say, as a community, what's your voice in this? If you, mm. you know, where would you deploy this capital? That's, that's a release of power. And that's where, that's probably the hardest, the hardest conversations right now, because even impact investing has sort of reinforced these same power dynamics of if you have the wealth, you get to make the decisions mm. about what's right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not how these decisions should be made. And that really is at the heart of what does it mean to actually have a, a kind of democracy working, right? That, you know, our forms or how we've traditionally thought about capitalism needs to shift some. But I think the conversation around language here is really interesting. I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me that you were talking about, you know, you taking a corporate finance class while you were in your first job in Boston and kind of realizing that there's this wall, but that behind the wall, these are terms that we're all familiar with by virtue of just being consumers or just living in an environment that has buying and selling happening. And I just find it interesting that we aren't ever taught, and I think about this and I lament about this a lot with my friends, that we aren't taught financial literacy in any way in our school curriculum. Um, and I don't even mean like waiting for college. I'm saying like K through 12. Yeah. It's not an integral part of our education, even though a lot of parents will have their kids even doing simple things like mowing the lawn or painting the fence to get extra allowance money. Like, I'm familiar with the concept of allowance, but I'm not familiar as, you know, a sixth grader or ninth grader how that fits in with, like, what my parents do or how we even have money to put food on the table or how we have a place that we're renting or, you know, living in, et cetera. 
And I don't know, I just think that's so poignant, like what you said about wanting to show people what's behind that wall. Yeah. Um, And I wish that that was a part of the sense of responsibility that a lot of these companies took on was not just transparency in their own portfolios, but also transparency with how it feeds back into people's individual lives so that we can be smarter decision makers and more empowered decision makers in this space. You know, one thing that you said later on was about how, um, I mean, we all kind of think about money as power, right? But the underlying conversation is, well, if you have money, then you're a decision maker. And that's really what then gets you that power. And the idea of being a decision maker shouldn't have to rely on money. We all know that at some level, and yet it kind of feeds back into that cycle. And I'm thinking that like language and literacy around this language could be a really big part of empowering new actors to be decision makers Absolutely. and a new public to be a decision maker. Yeah, and that's honestly kind These of These are all my... half-baked thoughts, but I just wanted to share kind of what my, where my head's at. That idea around language that, you know, I picked up 15 years ago um, is one that's really stuck with me. And it feels like the role that I play at SOCAP in curating Mm. the content that shows up is to make sure that we're doing that education um, because we all speak in lingo that we don't even notice that we're doing academia does it yeah everyone does it yeah and so um being able to just ask the dumb question of what does that mean when you say that I don't want to assume I know what Mm -hmm. you're saying can you explain that a little bit more Mm -hmm. I get to do that all the time uh someone will pitch me something around housing there's a whole lot about housing and the dynamics of housing that I have do not understand I'm like the constant fool (laughs) and I just ask like how does that work? What does that mean? And then I feel the responsibility to do the very basic 101 of um, pretty much any time I'm asked to talk about impact investing, I'll somehow sneak in. I don't want to talk down to an audience that may know these things, but more often than not, there's someone in the audience who says, thank you for doing that. Um, yeah. I really needed that. Yeah. And I usually just say, just so we're all on the same page, Yeah, let's here's what debt means, Mm -hmm. here's what equity means, Mm -hmm. here's what public markets are, here's what private markets are. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that there's sort of those like public debt and private debt Mm -hmm. are two different types of investments with different dynamics, there's public equity and there's private equity. And these are terms that get, you know, your friends probably say like, oh yeah, I work in private equity. What does that mean? I have I don't no know. idea. <laughs> but you do know. Sorry, friends. You actually do. <laughs> yeah. um, if it just wasn't, if said there was some basic yeah. framework set there. And so we just need to do that more. And mm-hmm. I don't know whether we do it in K through 12. I don't know if we do it in college. We might as well do it with 60 plus year olds. Yeah, I mean, everyone right. should know this. It's never too late to know right, it. Right. And it just helps understand that why you can't access that small business loan. Mm. It's not necessarily because of who you are. It's because of the way that that money is set up to work. And so you may be able to change things so you can access that, or you may need to access money in a different way. And so um, I think money can feel frustrating and opaque and 
Like there's these walls set up and and it is frustrating and opaque, but there's a lot that can be done to increase understanding just by getting through that lingo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I just do want to say because it's bouncing around in my head, you know, we kind of started this conversation, you know, looking at big actors went down to what happens, you know, really when people are local doing things. And, you know, the, the kind of the concept of people who are part of the market getting in the market, and as you say, we are the market. And at the same time, and even this whole thing about financial literacy and mm-hmm. how do people learn that, at the same time, we also recognize we live in a world and in a country where there are so many people who are so pushed out mm-hmm. to the margins that this quite fundamentally impacts the quality of their life and their ability to have a life. At the same time, it feels like like a foreign territory in a world that's not open to them. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that we have to figure out mm-hmm. how to work. And I think that's the real you know, piece around these kind of large-scale institutional things or things that are happening locally is that how, how does that happen? And what is the language that has to ha- occur for that? Because the language that's there you know, at the margins is one of the languages of survival. You know, how do I just kind of keep going? And then there's the languages of, of kind of resistance and of protest and of pushing back, having feeling like you have no control because there's so many other things that are assumed by about you mm-hmm. that determine what may be possible for you. So I don't know how we have those conversations, but they're they're out there, they're real. We need to figure that out because I think that's part of mm-hmm. joining this work, you know, mm-hmm. so that it actually has not only blended values, but it's having impact in the places that we really needed to have impact, which is really, for me, it's it's ensuring that everyone can have a quality life Mm -hmm. as we go forward. Well, and I think one of the biggest things undermining our democracy right now is the income inequality, you know, wealth disparity, and then racial equity issues. And both of those are so driven by systemic flaws in capitalism and ways that we haven't understood the power of money, asset building, all of these things, and really examined the ways that it's flowing in completely in just, there's stats everywhere right now around, you know, only 2% of VC funding goes to founders of color. 2%. That's crazy. That the racial wealth gap means that the average African-American family has something like $100 of wealth and that by the year 2050, it will be zero. And that means that over 50% of the population of our country will have zero wealth. That's not a functioning democracy. Like, there is no way that will work. Exactly. And so it's not anyone's problem. It's everyone's problem. And it has been a blind spot for the impact investing industry for the first, you know, 10, 12 years in the last two or three years, it's become a topic you can't, there's no way to be talking about impact without talking about having a lens of racial equity and really understanding how these market-driven systems have completely excluded populations and whether that's access to capital, social capital, entrepreneurship. There's an amazing entrepreneur named Jessica Norwood who started something called the Runway Project. And her the reason she calls it the Runway Project is she says, you know, it's not uh, 
a pilot problem. It's not a plane problem. There's plenty of entrepreneurs with amazing businesses. They have no runway. There is no friends and family mm. money in the African-American community because there is no accumulated wealth. There is, there is no yeah. uncle who has the money to loan yeah. it to you. And so what she created with the Runway Project was a really innovative um, financing solution that was basically a, a CD, which was a familiar – she wanted it to be her community who could invest in these enterprises. And so it's a really secure put in $50, get 55 back in three years or whatever that looks like. They have the certificate of the – deposit, it's a low investment level, but that the pool of money that can be aggregated that way is loaned out to entrepreneurs of color. And so there's these, there's others doing, you know, these innovative financing things, but it's really that, you know, you can't get off the ground. And we sometimes forget how many benefits and opportunities are not equally accessible. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us. This has been really wonderful. Uh, conversation. I, I mean, things are aligned because we would not have found you <laughs> on our own. And it's just like something in the universe is saying, okay, you need to be in conversation with each yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope the conversation continues because I have a lot to learn from. I think we've also got a flaw of not properly giving enough credit to government, to civic design. It's just been, it's some of this private capital has been like, government's not doing it, let's work around it. Right. And that's a flaw. <laughs> like we need yeah. more of these cross discussions yes. because there's so much wisdom in your, ex, you know, domain of expertise that should be engaged by the impact investing community. So really exciting, we're starting it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, it was a great conversation. It was really incredible to have her in the room. Yeah. And, you know, this thing about, you know, the last thing we were talking about, just how our economic system is just mm. really messing us over. Mm-hmm. You know, she talked a little bit about the national wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, you know, at the Federal Reserve here in Boston, they did a study on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually stopped talking about it as the gap. They talked about it as the divide. Mm. You know, they wow. said it really is a divide. And I think here in Boston, it was the uh, average uh, white family had $253,000 worth of wealth compared to the average black family of $8. And so, you know, I encourage folks uh, listening today to continue digging into the work that SOCAP is doing and into the way that the wealth divide, not just the gap, but the racial wealth divide looks even nationally. um, She said it was $100 for the average black family in the country. I'm not familiar offhand uh, what the average white family's wealth is, but I can only imagine with a gap like $253,000 to eight. (laughs) <laughs> well, it might look like nationally. Yeah. Similar dras- yeah, similarly drastic. So thank we'll you. Have, we'll have more information on this yes. on our website, so please check us out. Also, if you get an opportunity, you can listen to our interview on Lindsay's show, Money and Meaning, which aired on June 18th. Thank you for listening. Thanks again. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. 
Goodbye.